Let me read out our passage, remembering this has just come off the back of the Jews, the religious leaders, realizing that what Jesus is claiming is divine status, that he is claiming that he is equal with God, for God is his Father. Now from verse 19, Jesus is answering them again. So from verse 19 of chapter 5, this is God's word. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is God's word. Let me briefly pray. Father, please help me to faithfully proclaim your word. We want to know Christ, our Saviour, more and more. So open our eyes to wonderful things in your word. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Uh, it's very common from when countries are relating to other countries to send a delegation or a representative to that country where the person actually speaks and is obviously representing that foreign country to the visiting country. Perhaps the most well-known um, Times of this have been where members of the royal family or the Commonwealth come out to Australia and every now and then they would send a representative or a delegation to Australia. It was never a big thing for me, but I know some people really uh, thought it was just astounding that someone from the royal family was coming and they would be representing the royal family and the Commonwealth and there was perhaps something quite different when the Queen herself, while she was here, would actually come out. They were few and far between, but it was something very different. It felt like the Queen was actually the royal family herself here. And this passage today is one of the clearer passages in Scripture that demonstrates God sending his representative. God sending a delegation, if you will. But the representative that God is sending is actually God himself in the flesh. Quite a significant thing that God is sending himself in the flesh by sending his son incarnate to enter into the flesh to represent God to his people here on earth. We see that because the major point we were left with last week was Jesus saying, my father is working until now and I am working, which is him saying, I'm God. I have divine status. And this is shocking to the Jews, and therefore they are trying to kill him. It's a crazy claim that he is making. Now, in these verses here, from verses 19 to 24, we have Jesus now explaining how and why he is indeed equal with God. So he's still in the same conversation that he was having last week. We went over 
And now he's explaining how and why he is indeed equal with God. And the way that we see this is through these four fours. That is four, the number, and then four, the word, the the preposition, F-O-R. So we see this in the passage midway through verse 19, after Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. First four, four. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Then verse 20, we have the second four. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then verse 21, the third four. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then the last four in verse 22. For... The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. And then he will conclude by giving the, the result of those who hear and respond to this. So we have these four fours that explain how and why Jesus is equal with God. The first one is that the Son only does what the Father does. It's to do with his work. The second four is that the Father loves the Son by revealing everything. It's showing that Jesus as the Son is loved by God the Father. Thirdly, the Son has the same power of life as the Father. And then fourthly, the Father gives judgment to the Son as his representative. All must honour the Son with the same honour that they would rightly give to the Father. So this is Jesus laying out why indeed he is equal with God. The first four we have from verse 19, we have this initial explanation that Jesus gives after the Jewish leaders realize that he's making himself equal with God. And then he elaborates on this unity between he and the Father by saying that he, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus does Nothing except that which he sees the Father doing. This is, of course, not referring to some sort of incompetence within Jesus, that he can't do anything unless um, the Father allows him to. It's not saying that. It is demonstrating, rather, his unity with the Father by saying that everything that he does ultimately flows from within this relationship, from within this unbreakable bond between he and the Father. So he does not initiate anything that doesn't ultimately flow from that union. Now, we have a a secondary and a primary point here. The secondary point is not unimportant. I just don't think it's the main emphasis of what Jesus is saying. But nevertheless, it's an implication for it that's helpful for us. So the secondary point to this is how we see the inner workings of the Trinity here. So in the overflow of love that has existed between Father and Son, bound by the Spirit and all eternity, in the overflowing uh, love of that relationship, we see the Father expresses that love by sending His Son to accomplish their work of redemption, which they had planned before the foundation of the world. This is how we see the inner workings of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son to accomplish this aspect of the work of redemption, securing redemption for the elect. And so we see that in that, the Son 
here on earth willingly submits himself to the Father's will by lowering himself to the form of a servant. Hence why we read out that passage in Philippians 2 that we'll meditate on toward the end. We see that because we see the Son following everything the Father does in perfect obedience. Notice that throughout the Bible we don't ever see or read the Father looking at everything the Son does and following that. That's the wrong relationship. What's being expressed to us is this willing and joyful uh, subordination from the Son to follow everything that the Father reveals to him. It's, of course, not about inequality in any way, but rather it is a display of the mutual love within the Godhead. And we're going to look at the Father's love toward the Son in the next point, but here we're looking at the Son's love toward the Father, and we see the Son's love toward the Father by His willing submission, by entering fully into human flesh, so that as a man the Son of God lives in perfect obedience to the Father. This is a a beautiful display of the love that the Son has for the Father, because though being equal, though being perfectly equal, The son joyfully subordinates himself under the father's will for a time. So Jesus will go on to say, I do as the father has commanded me. Why? So that you all will know that I love my father. That's why I do all that the father commands me. So that you will know that I love the father. And just as a brief application for us as we think about this theme here. We uh, live in a culture where we're often so prideful that we naturally react against this pattern of willing submission. Even it probably sounds like an oxymoron to people. How can you submit and that be willing in any way? Surely that's referring to some inferiority. We shouldn't have to submit to anything. But here we see the perfect display of humility through Jesus' earthly ministry where he does, he, he submits himself under the Father so that he does everything that the Father commands him. He lowers himself, he walks in obedience to the Father's will and it's all to show the love that he has for the Father. That's how he displays that love. And we are to have this same mind among ourselves. We as followers of Jesus are to have this same mind. This same mind of willing submission, a posture of humility. Christ has set forth an example for us of utter humility that we are to meditate on and imitate if indeed we are his followers. Now that's the secondary point. If I can just come back to the primary point here. What is this saying in verse 19 where Jesus says, I only do, I can't do anything of my own accord. I only do what the Father does. What's the primary point? Well, Jesus is demonstrating his equality with God because the works that he does perfectly reveal the Father to us. They perfectly reveal the Father to us, not in the sense that we're conflating Father and Son, they're distinct persons, but Jesus as God's Son perfectly reveals the Father to us because he only ever reveals what is perfectly consistent with the Father. He only ever reveals what is perfectly consistent with God's will and nature because they are of the same nature. Different persons, but the same nature. The Son only ever does what the Father does. The Son can never do anything that is contrary to the Father. They are of the same nature. And Jesus here 
through his life and ministry, perfectly reveals the Father to us, which is why he can say to Philip, when Philip asks, show us the Father, and Jesus says, well, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're of the same nature. Jesus here is perfectly revealing the Father because he only ever does what the Father does. Because everything flows out of this Trinitarian union. Jesus is the visible representation He's not some delegate like an angel coming down. He is God in the flesh representing the Father because he is of the same nature. He is very God of very God here in the flesh to reveal the Father to us. He is God in the flesh doing what only God can do. Now that's our first four here. The works of Jesus perfectly reveal the Father to us. The second is in verse 20 where we read, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So Jesus has explained how the works that he does demonstrate the union he has with the Father. Now he explains the why. So why does the Son do everything the Father does? Well, the reason here is because the Father loves the Son. That's the reason. The Father loves the Son. Here's where we see the overflowing nature of God's love. The Father reveals everything He does to the Son precisely because He has a perfect love for the Son. This is another marvelous insight into the inner workings of the Trinity. Now, it is not as though the Son in eternity doesn't know what the father was doing. Like if you imagine the father kind of hiding something behind his back and then saying, hey, here you go, son. It's not as if the son never actually knows. It's not as if the father at one point was hiding something and then reveals it. The focus here isn't time-based. The focus here is relational. So we shouldn't hear the father revealing things to the son as though it was something once Hidden, rather, God the Father always and eternally discloses himself to the Son. It's about a transparency, a perfect transparency that the Father has toward the Son because he loves the Son. He is constantly revealing himself. It's the self-disclosure of the Father toward the Son eternally and always. This is yet another apologetic, a defense for Jesus as to his equality with God. Because if you think about this, how could anyone but God know and see all that the Father is doing? Our finite minds would explode. Only God could know and see all that God the Father is doing. Jesus alone can know and see all that the Father is doing. He's been doing it for all eternity. The Father constantly discloses himself in a perfect transparency toward the Son. The Son delights in seeing that and doing all that the Father does. They are of the one nature in that sense. And what is the primary reason that Jesus gives for why the Father does this? Why does he say? Why does the Father delight in revealing everything that he does to the Son? It's because he loves the Son. Because he loves him. The father has an overflowing love for the son where he eternally delights in revealing all that he is and does to the son. 
And the Son, therefore, delights in eternally knowing, seeing, and doing all that the Father does in perfect unity. This is the way that God has chosen to reveal this Trinitarian relationship toward us. He reveals himself as a Father loving the Son. And this is, again, another apologetic, just as a bit of a side point as to why God must be Trinitarian. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who's trying to say why the Trinity doesn't make sense, well, for God to be truly loving, there must be an object of his love. There must be an object of his love. Otherwise, if God is purely monotheistic, as in there is only one God, like the Islamic God, then that love is selfish. There is no object of love because God is only one. Whereas here we see that the Father loves the Son. There is an object of love that has had to exist before the creation of the world because we know God's love is poured out to us. But before we existed, before the world existed, God was eternally there and the Father was loving the Son. Jesus actually reveals this to us in John 17 where if you've ever thought about the question, what was God doing before he created everything? Like what was God actually doing before he created everything? Well, he was a father loving the son jesus says in john 17 where he's thanking the god and he says you father loved me before the foundation of the world that's what was happening this beautiful trinitarian love the father loving the son wrapped up by the spirit if there is no object of the father's love then he remains unable to love but the father eternally loves the son in a bond with the Holy Spirit and in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is being revealed to us. This is what we're seeing here. What God delights in showing us. And so the way we see this is through the willing and joyful subordination of the Son who lowers himself to the form of the servant so that he can show the world, I delight in doing all that my Father does. I love walking in obedience to my Father. And the Father reveals that he delights in showing everything to the Son. He loves disclosing himself to the Son, whom he is well pleased with. This is an amazing display of love. And this is the love that we are invited into. The love of God that is poured out into our hearts is this eternal love. This overflowing love from Father and Son. And as we are born by the Spirit, we are swept up into that love. It is the same love. If we are in Christ, we have the Father's love toward His Son in us. Which is an incredible thing. And finally, on this point, we've seen how... The Father loves the Son by disclosing Himself eternally and always. The Son loves the Father by doing all that He does. And finally, just in verse 20, this is meant to trigger a response. Jesus says, Greater works than these will He, the Father, show Him, the Son, so that you all may marvel. Now remember, Jesus is still addressing the religious leaders. He's still addressing the Jews in this time. So these people are blind to his majesty, but Jesus is quite simply saying, there will come a time where even more will be displayed and you will marvel. You will be astonished 
at what is happening here. In the end, all will see that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, performing the very works of God. And they will be left in utter astonishment, whether it is to their joy or to their judgment. So we've had the explanation of Jesus' equality with God through him doing only what the Father does. And then the reason why, namely to reveal God's overflowing love. Now, what is the ultimate evidence of this? Here's the next four, which is in verse 21. The ultimate evidence is that as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. The ability to raise the dead is something that only God can do. And throughout Scripture, we see minor exceptions to this. We think of Elijah and even Elisha. But it was always known that this was the hand of God doing this. It was God alone who could raise the dead. Even as we take this, even as we recognize some exceptions to this, notice the way Jesus says this in verse 21. He says, For as, so just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also, or in this way, the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is saying, in the same way that the Father raises the dead and makes alive, I do this. The exact same way. The same way the Father does it, I as the Son am giving life. The power of life and death, something solely reserved for God, is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We'll see this in John 11 when we get to it, whenever that is, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he then declares that he is the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus was stone cold dead. Jesus raises him from the dead, displaying that the author of life, the one who made life, he is here in the flesh to give life to whom he will. And as Jesus goes about his ministry, he will demonstrate this, that he has the power of life and death. Now, just a word of comfort for that, a really simple word of comfort as we think about Jesus having the power of life and death. It's really easy to get overwhelmed in this world. Just this week, I mentioned this on Wednesday, when earlier, I think it was on Monday, uh, there was the school in, in the US, uh, the Presbyterian school, also by the name of Covenant, who had someone come in and uh, shoot up the school and um, three nine-year-olds died, along with three teachers, off at school, and, and they're dead. And this is, that was the 129th or 130th mass shooting in America just this year. Now, that's just America, let alone other places of the majority world where death happens all the time. We are quite sheltered from it in our very affluent life here in Canberra, in the Western world. But the reality is death is always at the door. And what a comfort it is to know that there is no tragedy beyond Jesus' ability to give life. What comfort it is to know the hope of the resurrection. What comfort it is to know that there is life beyond death. And it is solely in the power of Jesus. He comes to give life. He comes that people living in death and darkness, people who are exposed to all sorts of atrocities and horrors, like your nine-year-old child heading off to school, and then a few weeks later you are burying them in the ground. 
what hope there is in the hope of the resurrection, that there is life. And it is solely found in Jesus Christ. There is hope. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so Jesus, as his representative, he has come here so that we may have life. Both in terms of those who are spiritually dead to have life, but then also we who will all die, we hope in the resurrection. Jesus is the Father's representative, doing all that the Father does and all of the life that God alone gives is now centred on Jesus as the one who offers this life. Now, in our last four, as we move on to verse 22, we have the final demonstration of Jesus' equality with God, which is that judgment has been given to Jesus so that all may honour the Son. This is where we see God the Father giving his Son as, as his representative. It's like he places the Son, gives all judgment to the Son. And what's the purpose of it? It is so that the same honour, it is so that the honour due to God the Father would be rightly given to Jesus as God's Son. That's the purpose of it. So Jesus says, This is so that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, you might remember from chapter 3 that John says God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world. So we know that God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but rather to save the world. But now here we are reading that judgment or condemnation has been given to the son from the father. And the simple way of understanding this is that, of course, Jesus didn't come in his incarnation primarily to condemn because he's coming to open the door of salvation. That's his purpose in dwelling among us is that so the door of salvation might be open, so that redemption might come. And condemnation is already upon those who do not believe. So while Jesus does this, while Jesus enters into the flesh as God's representative, he has complete authority to judge all those who do not respond to his gracious offer of salvation. He comes in his first coming to open the door of salvation. He has judgment. But he will return. The lamb who was slain for the sin of the world will return in fury to judge all those who have not bowed the knee to him. The father has given judgment to the son. This is saying that the father sends his son as a representative so that the Son receives the same honour that is due to God from man. And if that honour is not given to the Son, which is the honour due to God from man, then man will receive the judgment that is due to those who dishonour God. That is it. It is as though God the Father is saying, Here is my Son. Everything that you know about me centred on Him he has judgment. You must bow before him. Any response that you give to him is given to me. Any lack of response is a dishonor to me. So we see a consistency with something ascribed to the Father that ought also be, ought also to be ascribed to the Son, which is honor. All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It's the same honor which it probably doesn't seem as scandalous to us, but I mean, in that time, Jesus is this man from Nazareth 
this carpenter's son saying to the religious leaders, the honour that you should give to God, you have to give to me. This is why he has sent the son into the world. You must honour me with the same honour that is given to God. Jesus must receive this because he is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God dwells in him. And this is a, a weighty reality. This shows the extent of God's love. This is something to meditate upon. This shows the extent of God's love in that he would be willing to condescend so much that he would put on flesh in order to reveal himself. Remember, this is God sending his representative and the representative is none other than God himself in the flesh. It also shows the extent of God's love in that this is literally the extent of it, as in there is nothing further, there is no greater way that God could show his desire to redeem his people than to send his son. This is the extent of it. It's not like there's another step or another chapter in God's redemptive plan. Like this is it, sending his son. That's the, the, the climax, you might say, everything centers here on the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we re- see the redemptive plan. We think of Psalm 2, where the psalmist says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish away. Kiss the Son is to pay homage, to, to honor, to revere. We're seeing the same thing in this passage. Jesus saying, you must revere me. You must honour me with the same honour that is given to the Father. So these are the four fours which demonstrate how and why Jesus is equal with God the Father. Why he is his representative. He does the same works. He displays the love, the Trinitarian love. He raises the dead and gives life. And he has judgment so that all may honour him with the same honour due to the Father. And finally, what is the result for those who respond to this? What well, Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the marvelous reality of the gospel that those who hear the words of God's representative, And believe in him, they have new life, which is only found in Jesus. This eternal life, this life of the age, where one passes from death to life. We're on the side of life. Let's not forget the magnitude of the fact that we have passed from death to life. See, although Jesus rightly has all judgment... He he lowers himself to the form of an obedient servant who then takes the full judgment of God upon himself for those who have trusted in him. Your judgment, my judgment, the condemnation which we deserve, Jesus takes upon himself so that as Paul says in Romans 8, he condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus enters into the flesh, takes our sin upon himself. That judgment is placed upon him. This is how we have past we have passed over from death to life because in the death of christ he dies our death he dies a sinner's death and we as wretched sinners we pass over from death 
to life. As Paul says in Colossians, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love. Think of that. We have been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love. It's this same love that we've been having revealed to us, this eternal Trinitarian love. We are transferred from death, destruction, disorder into that love. Now, the way I want us to reflect upon this before we take the Lord's Supper is just to, again, read over Philippians chapter 2 to help us meditate upon this. In Philippians 2, we see the humility and exaltation of the Son of God. We see this idea of God's representative. We see how Jesus lowered himself. So from verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though being equal with God, he didn't consider... That equality is something to be grasped or snatched at or clung to. Rather, he willingly lowered himself. He lowered himself where? To the the form of a servant, a slave. To die the death of a criminal. He lowers himself. This is how we see the example of our own humility. We look to the example of Christ. He lowered himself to the form of a servant. And then we see his exaltation. Though he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross or the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So because of the humility of Christ... Because he went all the way to the cross, humbling himself, God exalts him. He now has the name above every name, which, by the way, is a reference again to the equality of Jesus as God, because it's a reference to Isaiah 45, where God himself is saying that I um, at me, at Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And now Paul is saying here, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he is God's representative to humanity. He is exalted, just like in our passage, Jesus saying, all must honour the Son with the same honour we give to the Father. And now our response We humble ourselves. We humble ourselves under the Son of God. We humble ourselves under this example. This is what Paul is saying here. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's talking about the mind that we should have that is in Christ, following the model of Christ. How do we show that? By doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. By thinking more highly of others than ourselves. How radical of a thing is that in our selfish life? To actually think more highly of others than ourselves. That is an extraordinary thing. 
That is something that is fundamental to the distinctiveness of Christ's church, the holiness, that we would actually live lives that think constantly of others as way more important than ourselves. Not so that we are burdened so much that we become a burden on others, but because we are seeing this in the life of Christ, who, though being equal with God, did not consider that something to be grasped at, but rather humbled himself, lived the life where he was obedient to all that the Father commanded so that he would show us, this is how you love. This is how you, as my followers, show your love for me. You walk in obedience to me. You walk in obedience to my word. So we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves under the example of Christ. Those who do not humble themselves under this example will be humbled in a catastrophic way as the risen Christ returns in judgment. But for we who have bowed the knee to Christ, we now live this life of humility, but we do it in this uh, almost counterintuitive reality that we actually are exalted to heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We who have humbled ourselves before the cross. God exalts us. And says, you are sons, you are children of God. You are clean and washed and sanctified. You are perfect in my eyes because you are in Christ. So that eternal Trinitarian love that the Father gives to the Son that is poured out upon us. So that the Father, with the same expression, can look upon us and say, my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. <laughs> 